You can be turning to the book of Isaiah. We're going to look at two passages in the book of Isaiah this morning. We'll be looking at Isaiah 64 at first, just briefly, and then we're going to Isaiah 53. This time of year, we, if we think about the meaning of the seasons, our thoughts are drawn to the truth that Jesus Christ came, was born in a manger. The wonder of Christ's birth is amazing. We spoke of it uh, this morning. Uh, Several spoke of the idea that the wonder that God did anything, that he didn't just leave us in our sin, is an amazing. So as we think of this time of Christ being born of a virgin in a manger, it's amazing. It's a wonder. God didn't just write us off. Uh, But it's not just a wonder that Christ was born in a manger. That was just a step in the whole process of what God has done for us. And as we think about what Jesus did, uh, the beauty in his coming, to see the beauty in his coming, we have to ask ourselves why he came. Why did he come? Why did he go through all that he did? He came because man was in a desperate situation. And several have spoken of that in their prayers and the things that have been mentioned. We're sinners. We're vile in God's sight from from. Right after we are created, Adam chose to say, no, I don't want God. I I want to be like God. And from that point on, we were desperately wicked. And every person since that point has been desperately wicked. And if you'll turn with me to Isaiah 64, and that's what we'll begin. We'll read uh, a short passage and just make um, some quick observations that will help us to see the basis of why God sent Jesus. Um, In Isaiah 64, we'll see how God had Isaiah describe all of us, all of us in our natural condition. Isaiah 64, the second part of of verse 5 down through verse 7. Isaiah 64, 5b through 7. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned in our sins. We have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. There was no one who calls upon your name. Who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us. And have made us to melt and in the hand of our in our iniquities let's pray together father as we have met together for the purpose of worshiping you i pray that you would indeed help us to do that this morning that our hearts and minds would be turned to the wonder of what it was when when you took the steps of sending your son into the world what it was that he was doing the wonder of his birth the wonder of his life the wonder of his death the wonder of his suffering, 
on our behalf. I pray that you would be with us and that you would open our eyes. Lord, make plain your word and the wonder of Christ to sinner and saint today in Jesus' name. Amen. We read Isaiah 64, part of verse 5 down through verse 7. And, and if you read any of the New Testament at all, you heard things that you've heard before. You heard things that others have quoted. You find from this passage phrases that Paul used in the book of Romans as he describes man in his fallen, in his natural condition. And several things are mentioned. It says in this passage here, and it's reiterated out into the New Testament, it says that in God's sight we're all unclean. Every one of us is wicked in God's sight. That's the way we were born. That's the way we are without Christ. We're all unclean in God's sight. Even the best things we do are like polluted garments in God's sight. And of course, many of you know the reference that there, that's there. It's, it's menstrual cloths. That's the beauty we are. The best things that we can do, we're as if we're presenting those things before God. In God's sight, we are tremendously unclean. The passage goes on to talk about how like a leaf that is helpless in the wind, so our sin will cause us to be taken away. You, this time of year, we've just finished watching all the leaves fall. And if you've watched uh, out your office window or out a kitchen window, a particular leaf, and you've watched it for just a little while, teeter in the wind and it hangs there and it hangs there. And it can do nothing to revive itself or to reattach itself. As time goes on and the wind blows, at one point that leaf will be broken off. And the leaf never gets to say, I want to land over there. But it is carried away by the wind. Its fate is sealed by something else. And that's the way we are. We're, we're like helpless in the wind. We're sinners. In our natural state, we have nothing good in ourselves. And we can't say, but I want to land over there. Our sin carries us away. And, uh, and we cannot help but sin. This passage goes on to talk about how not one of us calls out to God for help. Not one of us is like a leaf on the tree saying, help me win, help me go there. Or anything of that sort. In fact, none of us in our natural fallen condition wants anything to do with God. He's our enemy. He's the one we fight against. And even worse, because of our sin, God can't even look at us. He's too pure and we're too vile. It says in this passage that he has hidden his face from us and reserved us unto the burning of his wrath. We're an awful, in an awful condition. God can't look at us with anything but wrath. And we will not look to him for help. And we can do nothing but be carried away to the destiny of what our sin has made us. We can do nothing. But thankfully, even though God can't look on us in our sin, God has chosen to act. And that's where we tie it back to where we're, what we're thinking about today as we've We've read and sung of Christ's birth. God chose to act. God sent his perfect 
sinless son to be the God man. And God can look on him. And then at, as he lived his life, he came born of a virgin, lived his life. God did look on him and God laid on him our iniquity. And then God turned his face away from him because of our sin. So there's hope. There's, there's not just a little hope. There's glorious hope. And as we look at this, as we now turn to Isaiah 53, we're going to see some of the things that God did that show us the wonder of the hope that God provided. So turn back. We won't be coming back to Isaiah 64. Turn back to Isaiah 63. We're going to see in Isaiah 63, 53, 53. I may have said 63 before. It's 53. We're going to see in Isaiah 53 God's provision for our situation. And I'm going to read from 52, 13 through 53, 12. Follow along as I read that. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were, as a, were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. As that's happened, he, he's so marred because of what he says, so in that condition, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For, with, for that which was has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was, he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before his, its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We see here how God provides for this situation. Remember, we were people totally without hope, nothing that would cause us uh, to be able to merit any favor in God's sight. God wouldn't even look at us because of our sin. As we look here at Isaiah 53, we won't be going back into the uh, verses in 52. As we look at this passage in 53 here today, I want to organize it around three or four sections to help us to see the various parts of God's work to save sinners. The wonder of what Christ did when he came to be born of a virgin. Four divisions or four sections and, and see how God worked in various ways. And so we're going we're gonna, to uh, headline each of these divisions. So as you hear this, maybe it'll help you if you're keeping notes. It'll be, each division will be, we'll start out with the phrase, to bear our transgressions. And then it'll go on with something. And so we'll begin, as we look at verses 1 through 3, to see how to bear our transgressions, he became like the lowliest of us. Not only became lowly, he became like the lowliest of us. Now, there's some qualifications here. He became like us, but without sin. He became like, there's not one of us in the sense of sinlessness that are like him. But he became like us in that he took on flesh. He had a human nature. He had a physical body. He was weary. He became like us, but without sin. And yet, when God sent Christ into the world, I don't mean to be trite, but I wonder, I wonder if when the shepherds looked at that baby, if they would have had the comment, that's an ugly baby. I don't mean that to be funny, but he wasn't born to be gloriously beauty, beautiful. There was no beauty that we desired of him. As he grew up, would he have been ugly? At least average, but nothing for us to say, oh, that is a good-looking young man. This passage likens him to a root, an ugly root, exposed out of dry ground. I mentioned this illustration to you not too long ago, but if you have a yard and you have a tree, you may have some odd-looking projections out of the ground where a root comes out, and maybe you've hit it several times with a mower, and now it's disformed. And, and you don't look at it and say, oh, that's just the most beautiful part of the tree. You look at that and think, that's ugly. It's just a crooked stick that's been beat up, and it looks dry, and it looks dead. And it sticks out of the ground, and it just kind of comes up and goes back into the ground. It just It's an ugly stick. And I don't, again, mean to make things trite, but it's really emphasizing 
The fact that there was no beauty. No one looked at this child like they looked at Moses and said he was a beautiful child. No one looked at Christ and said, this is a beautiful child. This is a beautiful man. There was nothing that we should desire him. But I want you to see the wonder of what God is doing here. To, be, to bear our transgressions, he became like the lowliest of us. God took on flesh to deal with our transgressions. He did not come as the best looking human. He didn't come as the strongest human. He didn't come as the most powerful human in authority and such by the ways of the world. He didn't come as the most respected human. He came and many people thought he was the illegitimate son of Joseph and Mary. And that they had committed sin and he was just that. He did not come as the most respected human to deal with our sins God took on flesh and was despised. He was rejected by man or by men. It goes on to talk about how he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We'll talk more about that in a bit. He was a man of sorrows. It wasn't that he had the most gleeful and cheerful growing up and and, an adult life. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And that's not what God deserves. If you think of the fact that this is God in flesh, that's not what God deserves. But that's what we needed. We needed a God-man who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We needed a man to come who didn't stand out. He stood for every man. In fact, he stood as the lowliest among the low. He came to be that kind of man. That's what we needed. And so God sent his son into the world lowly. Without being recognized. So that he could bear our transgressions. Secondly, to bear our transgressions. Our sin was laid upon him. And he took our place. This is verses 4 through 6. And this section emphasizes that they were not his transgressions. They were our transgressions. Has he lived in... How many of us hate to be accused for something we didn't do? How many of us hate to take not only the blame, but to suffer for what we didn't do? It can make us mad. Go out on the street with your car and go out into the road legally, rightly, the right speed and have someone hit you and then blame it on you. We're not so happy. That brings out the lack of sanctification on some of us. But this section emphasizes that they were not his transgressions, they were ours. (coughs) The freight... (coughs) There's a phrase in this passage that points, it it uses the word we. We believed that he deserved what he got. And it it refers to the crowd at the time. Now, it's true of all of fallen mankind that they rebel against God and are glad for God to be pushed down and, and, and defeated. 
But the point is here that as the prophet makes this prophecy concerning the one who had come, he's saying that when he walked in this day, they're going to look at him and say, that man is getting what he deserves. Why did they say that? They blamed him for committing blasphemy. Because Jesus did say that the Father sent me. I and the Father are one. And, and the Jews recognized it. And they blamed him. They accused him of being blasphemous. And when he died, they would point their finger at him thinking, you're there because you deserve it because you committed blasphemy. You deserve what God is giving you right now. And that's, of course, not the case. He is God. He was God in the flesh as he walked on this earth. He is God in the flesh now. Blasphemy was not true. But they thought that it was true. What he was doing was going through what he was going through for us. They said, it's your own fault. God said, I'm laying the sin of my people on this one who is my son. He was wounded for us. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was chastened for our peace. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, a familiar verse. You may know it. For our sake, he, God, made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see what God is doing here? The only way man can bear his own penalty for sin is for him to spend eternity in hell, and it will never be paid. Again, the only way for man to bear the penalty for his sin is to spend eternity in hell for his own sin, with no relenting, with no, if I just make it 10 million years, God will say, okay, that's enough, you've done it. It'll never come to that. For man to see anything but hell, the hell he deserves, someone else would have to take his punishment. You see what God is doing? How amazing is it that God be willing to do that, to send his son in such the lowliest of low ways and allow our sin to be placed on him. We love to see people get what's coming to them. We watch a movie, the bad guy transgresses and he transgresses upon transgresses and, and we're like, we're so mad at this guy. Why do, I can't wait till he get what he deserves. That's the way we're built. We want justice. How amazing is it that God would desire that desire to see that we not get what we deserve? Think about that for a second. We want people to get what they deserve. Somebody pulls in front of us, we hope they get stopped and get a ticket. We want people to get what they deserve. They're the God of the universe is in heaven and man is putrid in his sight and vile and won't turn to him. And God is so holy. He could stand there and say, I can't wait until man gets what he deserves. But instead, God is saying, no. I'm going to keep these people 
from getting what they deserve. But to do that, I'm going to put it on my son. How amazing is it that God would be willing to place the guilt of our sin on Christ, that we would not get what we deserved. The third thing, to bear our transgressions, he was oppressed and afflicted by men. This is verses 7 through 9. This section emphasizes what God allowed men to do. And this amazed me when I thought about this. God allowed men to do things to his son because we're sinners. Man was guilty for performing atrocities against the son of man. And yet God used Man committing those atrocities in Christ bearing the penalty for our transgressions. Now, before we talk about that, let me just mention this verse makes some amazing thoughts. He bore those atrocities without complaint. He bore them without struggle or resistance like a sheep before her shears is dumb. So he opened not his mouth like a lamb to the slaughter. He was led and didn't fight. Jesus allowed men to do to him the things that God had ordained. Creator, allowing his own creation to spit in his face, to smite him with a reed, to slap him across the face, to pull his beard out, to whip him with a cat of nine tails until the blood flowed, to throw a robe on him, let it clot enough to pull it back off. God allowed men to do that, to pay for our sin. And he did it without complaint, without struggle or resistance, without anyone to stand and plead for him. See the atrocities of men as we see that the Redeemer was... Taken, I'm, I'm making sure to cover some of the phrases that's here. See the atrocities of men as we see what the Redeemer was, that the Redeemer was taken away by the oppression of men. Men said, we hate God, we're, we're going to kill him. And that's what they did. They oppressed him and killed him or took him. He was forbidden proper judgment by men. Men said, no, we're not going to go out and let him have the proper we're going we're gonna to give a fake trial in the middle of the night. We're not going to send out for witnesses. We're just going to run this through. He was beaten by sinful man as an innocent man, man. He was mocked by sinful man even though he was the son of God. Mentioned this already. He was whipped by sinful man. He was crucified by sinful men. Crucifixion was the worst form of execution known to man. The pain was excruciating and greatly prolonged. The only way out was death. How the hours would have tried his soul, caused anguish of soul, just in the physical aspect of his suffering. Remember, this is our sin laid upon him. It is God allowing man to commit atrocities against his son for the sake of paying for our sin. The anguish of soul. 
our Redeemer was innocent, stricken not for himself, but for the transgressions of his people. If you're here today and trusting Christ, he was stricken for you. He allowed men to do these things to him for you. The fourth section. To bear our transgressions, he was crushed by God. The last section was what God allowed men to do to Christ on behalf of paying for our sin. This is what God did to Christ. This is verses 10 through 12. This section emphasizes what God did to the Son, that he might bear the transgressions of his people and be satisfied. For us, I'm going to say this this way, it's a little odd, but it's emphasizing God. For us, it was God's will and it was God's work to crush the Savior. God did it. The act of God putting all his wrath, all his punishment for our sin on his son was God's work. He crushed his son. Wrath like like what the lost would endure for all eternity in hell was placed upon his son to crush him for our sins. So it was God's will to crush the Savior. It was God's will to put him to grief. The ache and the ache of sorrow and loss. It was that hurt you feel having lost someone very close that you never want to feel again. Some of you have felt that. You've felt pain, emotional pain, suffering such that you would do anything not to ever feel that again. That's the kind of putting him to grief that our Savior faced. Remember his words. We'll repeat some of them in a minute. Remember his words in the garden. Oh, if there's a way, if there's a way. God put him to grief. To bear our sin, the Savior not only felt the agony of the wrath of God against sin, he also felt the ache and sorrow of loss. He felt the ache of his creation turning against him. He felt his, the ache of his father inflicting wrath he did not deserve. He felt the ache of his father forsaking him. For us, it was God's will to make Christ's soul an offering for sin. He stood in our place. If you're a child of God, it was God's will that Jesus make his soul an offering in your place. What one of us could or would put our son in such position for others? How great is God's love for his people? This phrase moves me deeply. It says that God was satisfied when he saw the anguish of his son's soul. I'm putting it into words. He was satisfied when he saw the anguish of his soul. What kind of anguish would the father have to see in his son to satisfy the wrath of God against the sin of all his people? You have to think about that. What kind of anguish would the father have to see in his son 
to satisfy God's wrath against the sin of all people. Think of some of the wickedness we have done. Think of some of the wickedness some people have done. Some people you can't even speak some of the things that you've done, and yet some of those people have turned to Christ. Some of those people have had that sin washed by the blood of Christ. What kind of anguish would God have to put his son through in order for him to say, I'm satisfied. That sin is dealt with. I want us to see his anguish before the cross. We can't see it, but I want to point you to some of the scriptures that speak of it. Six days before the Passover, Jesus said of himself, this is John 12, 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Six days before his death, our Lord was troubled in soul at his approaching death. How great must the suffering that was coming have been. That one with all knowledge was troubled in soul. And then Matthew 26, 36 through 38. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And talking with Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And then Luke 22, 41 to 46. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came as to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter temptation. Our Lord's agony of soul at this point was already such that it caused him sweat great drops of blood. And already he needed angels to strengthen him physically enough to keep going to the cross. No man, no other man, period, in this world has ever felt the agony that Christ is feeling already at that point. And he still had the trial. And he still had the cross. And he still had the moment when his father would turn his face away And he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's look at some of those. There on the cross, he suffered the wrath of God. No one had ever experienced, let alone the the, the anguish of the garden, but the wrath of God on the cross. If the wrath of man is expressed in the form of scourging and the cross, what was the wrath of God like? Who can even fathom, let alone express in words, how bad must the suffering of the wrath of God be? Wrath great enough to atone for the sins of all God's people. How bad would Christ have to suffer in order for God to say, that is enough? How deep must the anguish of his soul bend? And then the 
to top it off. In the midst of the anguish of soul beyond what we can even begin to comprehend, our Savior was then forsaken by his Father in punishment for our sin. Words fail when speaking of the anguish of the Savior's soul. Praise God, when God saw the anguish of the soul of his son, he was satisfied. And for those trusting in Christ, they will never experience that kind of anguish or anything near it because God was satisfied. It took unspeakable suffering to make us right with God, but Christ has done it. An unspeakable cost. This passage goes on to mention that his suffering not only paid for our sin, but also made us, made many, all those who trust in him, righteous. He's earned his people. It's, it, I'm sorry, this has earned Christ the place of highest honor. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, we can't do anything to earn God's salvation. We can't say, Lord, let me do this and I'll be worthy of that kind of suffering. We could never be worthy of that kind of suffering. But what are we to do? We're to repent and to trust him. We're to repent of our sin. Lord, I know that, that I'm a sinner and my sin is vile. And I choose, I desire to turn from it. Repent of our sin and then trust in him who bore our transgressions. You can't do anything to make God say, that one, I like that one, he's good. You can't do anything to curry any kind of God's favor. All you can do is recognize that you're a sinner and say, I, I choose to trust Christ's righteousness. I, I let him stand for the punishment I should have had. I trust in the work he has done. If you're here today and know your sin makes you worthy of God's wrath, God's command to you is repent. It's to remember what Christ has done. Turn away from not caring about your sin and its consequences. Turn away from trying to make yourself acceptable before God. That's foolish. It will never work. It took Christ's suffering in this way to be able to make you acceptable before God. Turn away from trying to do it yourself. Acknowledge that you're a sinner. God also called you to trust in what Christ has done for you. All this that he did, he died and he did. He did in paying the penalty for the sins of his people. Trust that work. Trust what he's done. Trust how he has paid the penalty of your sins. Trust in him. So what are we to do? We're to repent and to believe. What else are we to do? I'd say that demands love and worship. If you are trusting Christ today, this chapter has described what Christ has done for you. How can our lips be silent when such a wonder has been provided for us? Yes, we are to be people. If we love him, we keep his commandments. But even that we do terribly and still depend 
on what Christ has done for our hope of heaven. What should we do? Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the beautiful picture. It's beautiful and and yet it's terrifying. It's awful to think of the awfulness of what Christ had to go through for us. But it's wonderful. It's amazing that God would send his only son to endure such things for us that we might be accepted, that that God might be satisfied, that, that we might be right before God, not by our own doing, but by this work. Father, I pray that you would help us never to forget the wonder of what Christ has done. And may our hearts be filled with love. And may we sing and may we wonder and may we worship and may we serve and may we love you. But Lord, we need your help for that. And I pray that you would be with us in that. And Lord, if there's one here who's thought this whole time, he's talking about me. I I had never cared about God. I had never known that my sin was abhorrent in his sight and I never cared. And, and even maybe some here knew for a while that your sin wasn't abhorrent in, in God's sight. Lord, if there are any here who don't know you today, I pray that today would be the day they repent of their sin and they trust the work of Christ. And I pray that you would be with us, that this would bring glory to you in Jesus' name. Amen.